Yeah, but Brit, the Brits like bumbling posh boys in some way. With bad They're hair. Like, oh, yeah, with bad hair because he's not. He's not at least one but of the. No one buys. No really one buys that parting. anymore. But they appreciate that he tries. He tries mm. to put forward this bumbling, like, oh, I'm just uh, an honest guy with with hair. Um, did you see the tweet that Harry Cole put out, which was about? He's like, oh, I found some more long, straggly blonde hairs on my on my pillow. Oh, that serves me right for getting a Labrador or something. It's like. <laughs> That tweet has not aged well because, of course, Boris uh, had sex with his wife. So... <laughs> Fucking hell, that's amazing. <laughs> I did not know. This is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast. At the end of the end of history, what comes next? All right. Hi, everyone. This is Alex Hochuli. I'm in Sao Paulo. As usual, I have Ben Fogel with me here and George Hoare is in London. Uh, Phil, exceptionally, is away. It's an exceptional episode. No, Phil. Where is Phil, George? Uh, he's in He's in Greece. He's gone to get red. Um, to, come, <laughs> to get to get, get, get red. Get, get, yeah. So basically, like, Phil has joined the, the hordes of British holidaymakers that go south to southern Europe after voting to exit the EU to uh, get their face to resemble the colour of slightly overcooked ha- pork products on the <laughs> no, beach a, and then annoy the, over- and annoy the tourists with drinking too much cheap liquor and harassing the local woman. <laughs> well, this, wait, the, 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 because it's a bit of a state of exception, you could say he's, uh, you know, he's got Giorgio Gammon. Giorgio Gammon? No? Yeah. yeah, you know, uh, I mean, uh, first of all, it seems Italian, but the, like, yeah, it didn't. It doesn't really. It doesn't really work. If uh, I if I'd gone, then you could say Giorgio Agamemnon. Ah, shit, that would have been good. That would have been good. Yeah. Can you go to Greece soon, and then we can make that joke in your if absence? You, yeah, if you pay pay for it, if we can put it on the podcast expenses. Yeah. Central. Yeah. <laughs> well, listeners, you've got all that to look forward to that that like long time setup joke. Anyway. So we're going to talk about a couple of things uh, this week in uh, a kind of uh, break from normal programming. Um, we're going to do a quick roundup of a couple of things. So first, we're just going to catch up a little bit on Sweden's election, which happened this past Sunday. Uh, talk a little bit about Brazil um, as a sort of a preview to a more substantial episode we're going to do in the coming month. And then talk a little bit about what happened to ethical consumption, um, this being prompted by the Colin Kaepernick Nike ad and all the wokeness around that. Um, firstly, you guys see the Sweden election results? Yes, I did. I didn't follow at all the elections, uh, but I did see, and I am not no expert in Swedish politics by any means, that the Swedish Democrats, which I think is the far-right party there, did very well. And I also think... Uh, there was above average results for the far left, but I really didn't follow that part that much. Yeah, I mean, I think the, a lot of the discussion in the lead up to it was that this would be another victory for the populist right, that they would be able to form a government. Um, and you get the same kind of dynamics that we talked about in relation to Italy a little while ago, where especially liberal media outlets love to talk up the kind of the fascist threat. Not that one, one they do, don't atten- they? It, it's quite prurient. They're like, oh, oh no, another place could go fascist, but they're secretly kind of rubbing their thighs and thinking this would be this would be great for selling some papers. Which, yeah, which as we've discussed before, kind of is the way of justifying their own role, right? You know, a rising right justifies kind of liberals' existence. 
Well, before, I mean, it's two points to make. One, to sort of preempt our discussion about Brazil. Well, it might actually happen in Brazil. And sec- but we can talk about that later. But secondly, I mean, I think that the thing that really pisses me off about the rising right narrative is not that there isn't a right rising, which I think there certainly is. It's this sort of sense of fatalism, is that as long as we keep the moral high ground, it's we, that's the way to react. It doesn't. It seems not to be something which advocates any sort of real political opposition. It's kind of like uh, we're going to talk about it, but we're not going to do anything more. Yeah. So it it it's that sort of like we looking at an unrushing unru- bus or car train heading towards us, depending on how big the right force is, and we're not going to step off the tracks. Yeah. Well, and and this is most evident with the issue of immigration, like that the masses are preternaturally um, opposed to immigration and there's nothing that we can do we can just keep upholding a moral line of course many centrist parties were the ones to introduce kind of more immigration controls or at least introduce the idea that immigration should be controlled so it's it's a bit hypocritical but what's interesting about Sweden is precisely that the the sort of right-wing anti-immigrant Sweden Democrats didn't actually score that well um, I mean they still got 17-18% of the vote but, uh, you know, their, their leap, I think, was equaled by, um, the, the far left. Um, and what really, the real story here is that the center parties, the center right and the center left, which have governed Sweden for ages, it's the, it's the collapse of the kind of traditional establishment there and the, and the fragmentation of party politics, which, you know, it has happened across Europe, really, like in Holland, I think is the most, striking example with a whole bunch of little parties small parties gaining share of votes and the big usual parties of government losing share of votes i mean i I think that's yeah that's really important and we've talked about this in our episode on france and various other points social democracy is now pretty much completely tainted across europe uh voters associate it with all of these kind of post-political or depoliticizing moves um during the 90s and noughties um and yeah now it looks like they're they're rejecting it so i think that's you know it's obviously a mixed picture in sweden but there's a lot to celebrate from the from a socialist perspective and um, that the social democrats seem to be dropping away you know i mean there's a couple points to make uh one is that as i've been saying for a while the one exception to the two exceptions to this rule of the social democratic parties being annihilated is the portuguese experience in which alliance with the far left has kept the portuguese socialist party as a viable electoral force mm-hmm. and the second is of course the labor party which has renewed itself around left-wing left social democratic or socialist values in the case of the Swedish Social Democratic Party, it appears to be one of those other parties which has just run out of ideas in terms of being able to either return to its roots, propose something new that breaks with consensus politics. And the second thing I want to point out about uh, the Swedish thing experience right now is I believe, uh, from what little I have read, that the Swedish Democrats are also backed by a number of other establishment European conservative parties as a sort of natural force there. And, of course, I think the other story this week, and maybe uh, you guys have been following, is about uh, Viktor Orban in uh, Hungary. Mm. And the EU is finally, or is it finally going to react against him? Yeah, I think they voted, they got a two-thirds majority to censure um, Viktor Orban's uh, party there. So So we just pulled up a Bloomberg article about this, uh, which has a sort of nice uh, headline for a lot of our discussions over the last few weeks, which is, 
Hungary censured as European showdown of a populism takes shape. As is finally, this is the time the establishment forces stand up to the you know unbreakable force of populism. Yeah, um, but it, it's interesting that you know obviously as uh, listeners will know who've listened to our Hungary episode, uh, the economic situation is difficult there in Sweden. Uh, I this is actually an interesting. Um, Kind of it shines a light a little bit on how a lot of the establishment sees the rise of populism. So, in one political newsletter which I subscribed to, there was a their take was it's weird that populism is rising in Sweden because you know whereas in like the European periphery things are bad economically in Sweden things are all right and they've got a generous welfare state and all these kind of the usual um, kind of vulgar materialist readings of why populism rises. They're like, well, that isn't present in Sweden. So, you know, it must just be that people hate migrants or that they're racist. And I think that's like a really shallow, you know, and I'm in big quotation marks, materialist reading of things. And we have to look at the politics behind it. So, yeah, I think this is a point that Chantal Mouffe makes in her in her for left populism book, which is which is well made. Um, which is basically like it's almost like populism is a response to post politics. It's a response to consensus politics. It's a rejection on the political plane. And she probably overplays this, and hopefully we'll talk about this more in a in a future episode. But yeah, it's like <clears throat> these these economic explanations miss the fact that people are just pretty much sick and tired of um, a politi- of a politics which doesn't really go anywhere, which just devolves into a consensus or has a lack of new ideas and just basically spirals down into kind of the third way or its various mm-hmm. descendants. Yeah, another so, way of talking about this is talking about like the return of the repressed because post-politics represses division, conflict over anything. It ends up that that repressed element becomes expressed in other ways and often sometimes in nationalist or ethnicist or racist sort of ways. But I think understanding that political dynamic is, yeah, it's basic, it's, it's essential because otherwise you get lost in this very superficial economic analysis. That like, are things going up or are things going down? And if things, they're going down, then you get extremes. And if they're going up, you get the center. And, you know, that's kind of the, the level of, of political science that a lot of the mainstream propagates. Well, I mean, it also breaks with the uh, historical narratives that we actually have based on hard evidence that the last great upsurge of uh, class militancy among the European working class occurred occurred during the tail end of the golden age of Mm -hmm. capitalism where people's lives were getting better and salaries were improving and you know it's the old rising expectation thesis perhaps on that note it might be a good time to transition to talk about our depressing uh, election here in Brazil yeah. So, I mean, I guess as a, as a little bit of a preview, um, you know, Ben and I both separately have things out kind of previewing the Brazilian elections, um, I guess, to give a brief who's rundown. Is, who's of, is better? Who's is better? If listeners only have time to read one. So this is, <laughs> this is several things coming out. So that's uh, so Alex had a piece out in Jacobin, uh, I believe it was this week. Yeah, it was the end of last week. End of last it's week, very good. Last week. It's still is, relevant. It's still relevant. It's still relevant. Uh which is essentially a breakdown of the main uh, sort of contendants in this election, as well as some background on the politics, uh, the political trends in the election, and, uh, of course, the Brazilian crisis and uncertainties about Brazilian politics going forward. I, on the other hand, have two things out, or one is coming out still, and it might be out by the time the episode uh, is released, or it'll be out next week, which is a long essay on Brazilian anti-corruption politics in Lava Jato in the, cat- 
in the Catalyst Journal, which is uh, should be out soon. And the other was a essay uh, in the South African newspaper, the Mail and Guardian, about uh, Lula da Silva and what his imprisonment means for Brazilian politics. So let's just summarize the absolutely insane last couple of weeks we've had here in Brazil. In short, it really began when the highest Brazilian electoral court decided that uh, Lula da Silva, uh, former president, uh, leader of the Workers' Party and front one in the polls, uh, would not be able to be the candidate because he's currently imprisoned and he has used up his appeal under the Fischer Limpa clean state law and he's been disqualified as the candidate. But more happened after that. We didn't have much time to process that. Right, Alex? Yeah, I mean, shortly after, this happened last Thursday, uh, the leader in the polls, once you take out Lula from the from the reckoning, is Jair Bolsonaro, the far-right uh, fascist candidate, who uh, was stabbed by an evident nutjob uh, at a rally in a, in a small town in, in, the, in the interior of Minas Gerais. And... The, the immediately, the I think a lot of people worried that this would give him a huge bump in the polls, um, that it would justify his rhetoric that they're you know against violence and that to fight violence you need more violence that you need to arm the people to be able to to face down uh, rising crime. Uh, so the latest polls have come out in uh, and like two major pollsters have put out polls at the beginning of this week, showing that Bolsonaro did get a little bit of a bump, but it's. You know, one was in the margin of error. The other one was only slightly was only two points ahead of the margin of error. The case remains, though, that you've got a front runner with about polling at around twenty four percent, being Jair Bolsonaro, and then a chasing pack formed of four uh, candidates of the kind of from the center right to the center left. Two of the center left, uh, which is Fernando Haddadji, who it was Lula's vice candidate and former mayor of Sao Paulo. And he has now been elevated to the Petes official candidate. The hope there is that Lula, like he did with Jilma Rousseffi in 2010, can transfer his popularity and support to Hadaji to push him through into the second round. The second candidate is Cyril Gomez, who is kind of a populist, natural developmentalist candidate from the Northeast, who is currently second in the polls, uh, if you want, off tailing Bolsonaro. Yeah, and then you've got uh, a kind of steadily declining uh, numbers for Marina Silva, who is a sort of centrist, environmentalist and evangelical candidate, um, who most likely looks to be kind of who won't make it to the second round. And then you have the center right pro business candidate. So basically, the most establishment candidate is in fourth place. Well, actually, fifth place, I should say, um, in the polls, and doesn't look like he's going to make it to the next round. So you have a situation where the business class um, and indeed, international kind of financial markets are kind of pointing at Bolsonaro as possibly their favorite candidate instead of the likely center left options, which would make it to the second round. This is all to play for. And we're going to have to discuss this in a couple of weeks when we do a whole episode on this. You know, it's worth, worth repeating uh, something we've made in early episodes and is that uh, clearly um, the way that at least the 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 stirrings and mutterings coming out of Wall Street and Brazilian finance sector is that uh, Bolsonaro, who is someone who doesn't believe in democracy at all, he's not someone who respects democratic norms or has any firm belief in the constitution or any sort of democratic values, is the lesser evil to uh, the Pete, even the Pete led by Hadaji, who's kind of a technocratic, 
guy who ran Brazil's largest city without really having any big fights with capital was kind of like a solidly progressive technocratic uh, center-left uh, mayor who's somebody who's not particularly radical and is kind of a reasonable guy to sit in the room uh, he's seen as beyond the pale I mean and the other thing which has been really kind of disturbing over the last week or so is that uh, even while the establishment narrative is that the uh, violence meted against uh, Bolsonaro is a narrative of a polarized country between left and right after uh, for, uh, Rio Social City Council Marielle Franco was killed and people shot at uh, Lula's bus in uh, the south of Brazil and another a number of other incidents against the left uh, the guy who stabbed uh, Bolsonaro was not really he was just a nut job but it's like the right hasn't quieted it the far right hasn't quieted sort of better close rhetoric that in fact the Moron, who is the uh, vice presidential candidate for Bolsonaro, has even increased it, like threatening yeah. that if the left wants to fight, be professionals and violence and be ready to do it. And the military itself is beginning to make the highest echelons of the leadership are beginning to make mutterings saying that they won't allow things to get worse, that they're casting aspersions on what's happening. And it's not beyond the realm of possibility, although I don't want to fear monger right now, that we might see uh, more military intervention in these elections. Yeah, well, I mean, we're gonna have to come back to this, but I think for for listeners maybe following this, um, you know, from afar, it's important to underline that if you're seeing this as Le Pen versus Macron, or you're seeing it as Hillary versus Trump, uh, there are a lot of particularities about Brazil's situation which make it very different from those. Uh, so when you hear about Bolsonaro described as Brazil's Trump, that's quite misleading. Uh, but we're gonna be back with a lot more on that uh, in the in the next over the course of the next month. So let's move on to the main dish, um, which is something that uh, that I personally have kind of studied a lot of, but haven't thought of about for a long time, which is the notion of uh, politis- political consumerism, ethical consumerism, consumer activism, uh, all these things which, you know, you may you may yourself buy organic food and feel good about yourself, or you might uh, you might have bought Nike shoes recently because you like the Colin Kaepernick ad. Um, but it's something that seems to be um, in decline and has been for for a little while. If you cast your mind back to a decade ago, uh, which is something that we were talking about in our last episode about capitalist realism, that moment until the global financial crisis of two thousand eight was a moment of post-politics, of uh, lifestyle politics, of post-materialism, before things shifted back to more immediate kind of material concerns. Um, So what we want to do for kind of the remainder of this podcast is to try to look back and chart what happened to ethical consumerism and see if we can't draw any lessons from that uh, that transformation. Um, George, did you have any thoughts about when you saw the, the Colin Kaepernick ad? Um, and maybe summarize for for listeners what what it is if they haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, so I guess my first thought when I'm, I'm sure that listeners will have will have seen this. I can't believe that they 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 wouldn't have done. Um, but I guess my first thought, as probably a lot of listeners, was this is it feels a bit out of not out of touch, but out of time. Mm. So we are. Is is it now the the case that you have instead of uh, ethical consumerism a uh, woke consumerism so it's not about buying things that are, are going to change the world but it's about expressing your identity and in this case a kind of um 
I guess what how would exactly you would put it monetarize solidarity with um with this athlete who's obviously been a target of attacks for Trump for failing to stand for the national anthem sorry that's that's not the right way to put it failing to stand i've internalized the critique for choosing to kneel he took his stand by choosing to kneel yeah 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 that's a that's a good way to put it um which of course against many european listeners is is very strange that there's national anthems before sporting events anyway that's just weird Mm. yeah i mean speaking of uh, ethical consumerism in the united states i think there's a couple things worth pointing out uh, one is that I have compl- I am like Colin Kaepernick uh, is in the right to take the money because he can't get a job because he's been blocked out of the NFL yeah. by uh, the possibly the most reactionary faction of American capital, which are NFL owners. This uh, <laughs> is probably empirically true. If you did some research on them, they're really bad. They're the most anti-union like reactionary faction. And uh, secondly, uh, it's uh, the, the real issue was that basically... In the United States, the military sponsor a lot of sporting events, and there's traditionally a lot of militaristic rhetoric during NFL games. And by taking a stand against policing, by by kneeling and against racist police violence, uh, it broke such a taboo that the police associations, right-wing associations, and a lot of people who are actually kind of organized politically were lobbying the NFL to uh, act against him. I think the other thing is to mention the, I, if we, you mentioned the woke consumerism, whatever you want to quote now, the, I think the crowning moment of that was actually also at the Super Bowl two when Beyonce did her famous Black Panther and Katrina reference performance uh, before millions, which uh, played off the aesthetics of black radicalism in a way that wasn't exactly a protest. It was kind of absorbed by the NFL while... Uh, Poor Colin has been his career is frozen out despite mm. him being quite a good player. No one will hire him. So it's obvious that the interlinking between politics and consumerism uh, hasn't gone away. But that real flourish of ethical consumerism of the 2000s of expressing your political values through your consumption decisions, maybe even part buying um, products like fair trade rather than you buying your regular coffee or tea. We seem to have left that behind. What's interesting about the Colin Kaepernick thing is that it's Nike. And what does that make you think of? That makes, that kind of reminds you of ad busters and that 90s uh, style detournement, uh, anti-corporate anarchism. And it's like, wow, that was a long time ago. What happened to ad busters, by the way? I haven't seen it in years. Well, it's an interesting thing about ad busters, which is that in its, um, that its style of, um, its style of ad, you know, ad busting kind of cultural detournement kind of segued in a weird way a little bit with the alt right, or at least the alt right stole its thunder. Um, well, at the same time, Adbusters itself, uh, I think I remember were quite um, complementary towards Pe- Pepe Grillo's five star movement in Italy, um, which sounds weird but then if you think about it a little bit it, it it kind of there is a sort of dovetailing of those of that form of thought uh can you just explain this to me um, i really want to know why the alt-right and the adbusters this is not something i've thought of before uh got together or like meshed um so yeah i think there's a there's a certain similarity in terms of their their critique of of the media or what the or what adbusters um called the mental environment or meant they talked about mental environmentalism um so it's like this idea of, of basically who's 
<clears throat> who's doing who's saying things which are which are i guess um taking your expectations and turning them on their heads who's who's there to kind of to speak against the 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 dominant narrative in um in advertising and it's kind of strange that adbusters existed in in any case because of course the left previously had a strong strain of anti-consumerism and now the the people at least in the colin kaepernick example the the anti-consumerists are the people who are in one sense who are literally burning their their shoes uh, (laughs) or their nikes as as the brits would say and there's one particularly good example of a guy who didn't take his shoes off before he burned them and ended up in hospital with like second degree burns on his feet and that is the true like position of resistance and just like anti-consumerism that we should all seek to um seek to follow i think i mean of course i think the important thing to remember is that these expressions of anti-consumerism are themselves determined by consumerism i mean they still they still relate within the ambit of consumerism they don't escape from consumerism just because you decide to burn your shoes or you decide to not shop you have to buy the shoe in the first place Um, but even if you decide to withdraw from consumption and you decide not to buy or to buy less stuff that itself is only relating to the world through the market through consumption so it isn't really much of a radical critique um, listeners, I will have you note right now, I am wearing Nike trainers or Nike shoes, while uh, my colleague over here, Alex, is wearing Adidas tracksuit. I beg you to form your own conclusions based on this. Adidas <laughs> um, was always better than Nike, come on. Um, yeah, I beg you to form your own conclusions. Anyway, the um, I think to, to do a little bit of a, um, to try to chart where consumer activism went. So you had in the 90s a sort of Adbusters style anti-corporate anarchism um which was kind of which at the time was i guess what you call the tail end of the 1960s revolt where there was this kind of anti-corporate spirit you know a bit of like putting two fingers up at the man or one finger if you're american i guess the middle finger um and uh and a kind of still despite the kind of levels of irony and everything a still a sort of um a sort of belief in the kind of pure punk spirit by the time the 2000s roll around, that seems to have kind of dissolved. Uh, and what you get instead is more uh, active, supposedly positive engagements with the market in the form of ethical consumerism. It, it just makes me think, sorry to sort of interrupt no, you there a, a little, but it makes me think there's only really a short, a really short period of time that any cultural form has of being of being in any way alternative or any way resistance it's so easy to incorporate for example that punk aesthetic in the uh, the i don't know if it's internationally famous now uh, listeners might or might not have had any of the um the brew dog beers but they have mm. their punk ipa which is deemed by them to be a postmodern uh, classic i believe or something <laughs> it, it basically it used it, it's it's quite a um a post ad busters um, but I'm not drinking one at one at the moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's also the case with with cultural forms like rave, for example. That try any time that you try and get out of this uh, out of this matrix, it's only a really short matter of time before it's commodified and commercialized and thrown back at you. Well, I mean, it's notable that Adbusters sold their own sh- like trainers, you know, tennis shoes or whatever you want to call probably them. Probably shit though. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I mean, I think like the current age is actually. So um, the cultural signifiers of rebellion are really in, in but in a different sense. So uh, I think we've seen, as I mentioned before, uh, the 
Beyonce performance at the Super Bowl. Uh, we have uh, the Me Too, Me Too moments at uh, major award ceremonies. We also have the anti-Trump moments at the major award ceremonies. But in essence, a lot of like these things about individual achievement as resistance. And this has become sort of a defining consumer narrative. So uh, somebody who could be a sort of normal pop singer, very successful, makes some good music, uh, can suddenly become a figure who represents the culmination of uh, revolutionary anti-racist struggle uh, in a generation. Or we have the way that uh, in absence, in some cases of uh, strong movements, people have attached themselves to cultural symbolism as the height of resistance. But I think it's in the, like, such as in the case of like Black Panther. But I think in the case of what we have now, is that rather than being like a uh, sort of same spirit of the anti-globalization, anti-consumer stuff, it's kind of uh, more openly consumerist. I mean, yeah, pe- people want to pay money for this, and people like very much make your money, uh, make. So, yeah, I mean, no, I've just, I've, I've my, sorry, my brain's working a little bit s- slowly today after a long day at work. Unfortunately, yeah, listeners, I'm one of those sados who has a nine to five job um but just, yeah just the, drop the, out and get the, life man <laughs> yeah tune out turn on or whatever the i can't even remember that but just just thinking <laughs> be a wanker to, yeah to, li- to link back to to the point about the alt-right and um angela nagel's book which uh, angela nagel previous guest on the podcast um uh, kill all normies this point about transgression um and that's what i think fueled the alt-right in its in its uh, in its um infancy you might say still infancy now or infants at least. Um, but yeah, it, it, it seems like that, that moment, um, of, of Adbusters was, that was the way that transgression was, was possible culturally Mm -hmm. by just kind of writing fuck on some adverts for a, for a brand and trying to uncool that brand. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a kind of a a half formed thought. No, no, but I I think that's that that transgressive power now seems, seems gone i think that's right the you know and and kind of my own research uh, like own academic research on this um kind of holds up what you've just said which is like you have this you have the forms of kind of cultural rebellion which at least in the early 90s still try to resist the market right and like no we're not being commodified that sort of punk spirit but you know already at that time brands are are incorporating that and selling it back to people so people just become very cynical about that and instead the kind of focus turns towards using the market for good and so you know the 2000s is dominated by things like make poverty history um live aid um these sorts of initiatives which really focus not on a critique of our societies here in the west uh but are about helping poor people far away uh, and that becomes the, the kind of expressing humanitarian concern becomes a dominant mode of kind of consumer activism. And it actually dominated a hell of a lot of, you know, broadsheet column discussions. A lot of even discussions on the left were like dominated by some form of con- consumer activism. Um, and it's quite it's quite striking remembering this now and um, because it's because already then it was a much, a much greater comfort with the market, you know, and it's with something like fair trade it's a bit perverse because it's supposed to be something quite oppositional and creating new links direct links between western consumers and poor producers in the south and it's meant something that's meant to be authentic to um not engage within the major channels of of 
you know, flows and markets. Um, but the condition for its success was to sell more, right? So as an anti-consumerist proposition, it doesn't really work. Because if fair trade is going to be successful, it means you're going to have to be buying a hell of a lot of coffee and tea and everyone's going to have to start consuming fair trade. So it's a kind of an acceptance of the market and of commodification. And I have another point in this that you just just followed your observation about it being about poverty over there and being from somewhere that's over there. Remember those moments, those moments. Uh, But right now, it seems like in the West, uh, especially since, I guess, if you say politics coming home, the intensification of social struggle or social polarization, it's rarely focused on uh, inside the United States. I mean, all of these Mm -hmm. things we're talking about are rarely American critiques, whatever they are, or the aesthetic of critique or aesthetic of rebellion of American society from Americans. And uh, in many senses, the consumerism that's followed in terms of this consumption of uh, rebellious aesthetics has been uh, internationalized. So it's people over here in Brazil, South Africa, consuming the American aesthetic of rebellion and buying it. Mm-hmm. So it's is kind it, of like an inverse is, of the previous relation. Mm, is it now that this kind of rebellion consumption has been replaced with out, outrage boycotting? I mean, the, the idea that basically you don't, you don't buy something to, to change things in a, a way that I think Zizek you know, was absolutely right when he basically said, you know the, the the reason why people shop fair trade is to cognitively offset the, all the other things that they do and make themselves feel better without really changing anything. And instead, now you have um, this uh, company crosses some sort of line um, politically, and so you so you don't. I mean, obviously, there's always been boycotting and and boycotting, but but it seems like that's the new. Is that the new mode? Well, I think, um, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting that there's a you know if you look at the history of. Just, let's just look at post-Cold War consumer activism. Uh, they Each different wave targets a different agent of what it sees as an agent of capitalism. I mean, in some cases, it doesn't even talk about or think about capitalism. But, you know, like the Adbusters model was about getting kicking the man where it hurts and the man being advertising and marketing. Then that moved on to kind of maybe corporations in a broader sense. By the 2000s, it's more talking about the trade system, about environmentalism, about industrialism, um, these really kind of post-material sort of green ideas. Um, but by the, by our times, you know, it's kind of the kind of woke consumerism we were talking about. It's about expressing um, disgust with white supremacy or the patriarchy through consumption. I mean, I have a great example of like the export of this. Uh during a slow news week, I believe it was this year, there was that scandal with H&M. I think they had an advert in Sweden, which they had a uh, black kid who mm-hmm. was wearing like a happy little monkey hoodie or something like that, which is seen as quite racist. That in South Africa, I think it was a slow news week or the, somebody wanted to grab attention. Uh, the Economic Freedom Fighters, which is South Africa's weird populist party uh, known for wearing red, red jumpsuits and starting shit, uh, decided... and. It would be a good idea. And this is in South Africa where H&M is relatively new. I don't. I never shopped at H&M in South Africa. I don't remember it ever being in a shopping mall. Decide to go trash an H&M store and protest up with their advertising campaign in Sweden to get the, get back in the headlines. And it's really kind of like strange when you think about it, like in South Africa with all of these horrible companies which treat their workers like shit and kill them in many cases. that uh, you've decided this is the way to get the headlines. This shows that the sort of, uh, I guess, boycott or shame discourse about 
obvious bigotry or racism or sexism within companies uh, really has a lot of pull in terms of media attention and it was quite a savvy move in some respects i think also here like in the united states it seems like every couple of weeks there's a new boycott against some uh major fast food company which turns out to have some sort of depraved bigot as an owner and the last one was like papa <laughs> yeah. john's who they had to fire papa john himself because he was yeah. an open racist about colin kaepernick actually he was like couldn't stop like dropping the n-word about like nfl players who refused to like stand for the national anthem <laughs> but that's it it's like it's now it's now become all kind of consumer activism has been like wrapped up in the outrage economy i think george you're completely right about this I, just a point on Papa John. It still makes him like the second least bad pizza company owner because Dr. Erker was an actual Nazi, <laughs> wasn't he? So, also, so pizza guy, choices are a minefield. Like that's before you even get onto the like pineapple issue. Remember the guy, the guy uh, who, um, Herman Cain, the owner of Godfather's Pizza, who had a almost successful. I mean, I'm exaggerating, <laughs> of course, a campaign for the Republican candidate once. Yeah, yeah that's right. it seems like another age. He seems sort of lovable compared to the contemporary ones. Godfather's Pizza. So, I mean, I guess one thing that, um, you know, we talked about on last episode and a lot of, I think, what we're discussing here refers back to that mood music of the 2000s and like whether we've left that behind, how have we left it behind, um, what elements still linger from that period. And I think a lot of what dominated that form of of, uh, of engagement with cynicism, but a certain naivety too, right? So, like, remember clicktivism? Like, clicktivism isn't something that's discussed it very much anymore. But, you know, the, the quick signing of a petition. Remember Cody 2012. <laughs> exactly. Well, that that was, and that was the denouement. That was the end of it. Because after Cody 2012, no one bought into, like, clicktivist sort of activism. But I think there's... Shots a- to Cody, he's still free. <laughs> Didn't work, man. I clicked so hard. Uh, and the, you know... The forms of ethical consumerism, like expressing it through buying, you know, fair trade or dolphin friendly tuna or whatever it is, there's a lot of similarity with like clicktivism, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like trying to be pro social through your activities. That then I think gets just demolished by the cynicism of the age. So even that becomes like not a credible form of political engagement. I mean, I think the Coney 2012 is a great example because I think like, I remember because I was in the U.S. actually when bef- I met the, those those idiots, invisible children, who were like also like this front for a bunch of weird evangelical interests in Uganda. Uh, anyway, about that before like t- 2012, and like I remember being really weirded out by their high school musical sort of happy clappy depoliticized aesthetic, calling for like intervention in Uganda to do something, and something must be done. Uh, but uh, I mean, in terms of like the cynicism of our age. Uh, I think uh, readers here would also, uh, listeners here would actually want to see this clip as well. Uh, the height of Coney 2012, really two incidents stood out. One was, this is during the sort of Charlie Sheen era of like Charlie Sheen, what's he going to do next? He's nuts. He's got all these crazy things going on in his life. One of, I think, his porn star goddesses made a very uh, interesting video called Naked for Coney, which you can see on YouTube, <laughs> in which uh, it's clips of her taking off items of her clothing to reveal a, a skimpy swimming costume interspersed with uh, clips of uh, horrific images from the Ugandan conflict. And the, the, and then uh, that was sort of the height of activism then. And then when that video was released of Jason Russell, the musical theater-loving uh, founder of Invisible Children, yeah. uh, beating off on a street in San Diego and banging his fist raw, uh, screaming about Satan, it was really hard for them to recover from that. And I think like... People just assumed that uh, instead of like the cynicism, that being that sort of like, you know, well-intentioned stuff had something dark and uh, brooding behind it. 
I mean, that's a kind of fitting end for that for that whole movement. This guy just jacking off in the street. I mean, it is it is. I don't know if this is too much of a stretch, but this kind of social activism or collectivism is quite is quite onanistic. It's quite you know makes you feel better, but ultimately doesn't doesn't change anything. But I mean, the thing I guess in the the what was the big contribution of kind of ethical consumerism? It was part of constructing ethical capitalism, right? Um, it was capitalism trying to find new bases for legitimacy uh, after at the end of the Cold War. So it didn't have anti-communism anymore, um, and you know it also had the war on terror going on, but also at being you know, shopping responsibly uh, was a kind of a shift towards a new kind of more holistic ethic. And, you know, you still see that today with uh, mindfulness, right? The, the popularity of mindfulness or Reiki and things like that today. Um, well, I think more than that, even you see it with, <clears throat> and this is maybe even a, a whole different podcast episode, but elite philanthropy or the, the kind of the social mission um, of the global elite who uh who cast themselves as, as the kind of the, the saviors, for example, the, the, the Clinton Global Initiatives uh, or the, the Gates Foundation people who really, I think they do sort of, they have taken that kind of ethical consumerism and just taken it up a level to to the the elites. And this is the way that they, I guess, try and put, try and inject some social mission, some dynamism into, into, the, into the neoliberal project because it's like this is, it's only through this um, immense accumulation of wealth and then them choosing to spend it through philanthropic um, endeavors, which is actually also a form of con- of consumption. Um, that's that's what justifies this um, this massive accumulation of wealth. I think- it's kind of like the inverse of Chavs, actually, as well. That that the thesis of Owen Jones's book that it's like it's not you you know you justify this massive inequality not just by uh, demonizing the working class but also by lionizing the the ruling class and mm-hmm. showing how they're really actually very nice people. I think that was. I th- think that's past now. I think that's a few years ago. I think, to be honest, uh, the climax of this is my fellow countryman from South Africa, Elon Musk. You know, he's you can take the boy out of Pretoria, but you can't take the Pretoria out of the boy, as much as he tries. And uh, Botox and plastic surgery later, he's still a South African. He's still a dodgy oak. Uh, remember his recent effort at philanthropy, where he tried to build a submarine to save those Thai <laughs> children, and uh, ended up like calling the guys saved a pedophile or something like that. Uh, like it's come to this farcical level where like Elon Musk's bizarre antics are like uh, kind of uh, what what passes for like innovative philanthropy these days, and it's kind of like self self destructive. And in terms of like other elite philanthropists in the response to rising populism and authoritarianism and crisis, they become more explicitly politicized. They're the resistance now. It's like George Soros uh, going from uh, trying to fund democratization programs against. Uh, Soviet or countries in the Soviet bloc to uh, trying to fund the last vestiges of democracy under threat from the populist right, and it's kind of like now that even philanthropies become politicized. I think like yeah, you, you can see the ethical consumption is really over. I think the lot when Barack Obama left office, if you remember correctly, the first thing he did is he went on a holiday with another famed ethical philanthropist, Richard Branson, Branson, mm-hmm. who's a total total knobhead. Uh, um, on some sort of Caribbean uh, yacht. And that's image of just after handing power to this, uh, you know, uh, Cheeto-faced uh, ogre as Trump, uh, you're going to go chill with your elite buddies and act like the, nothing can touch you because you're rich now. I think that really sort of sunk hollow. And I feel feel like a, a lot of like people feel uh, sort of betrayed by that mission of philanthropy as well. Mm-hmm. And mm, it, as- it could, yeah, it, it could be that all these chickens are coming 
home to roost a little bit i there was a there's a particularly good illustration of of this um of the i guess philanthropies like uh philanthro washing if that's a word or basically the way that the that the um the ultra rich try and wash their reputation through philanthropies i'm sure you've both seen this the sackler family um who are massive philanthropists they have wings in various um uh museums across the world they have libraries they have xyz um and they obviously they're uh, well listeners pr- probably know they're the the owners of the, the purdue a pharmaceutical firm who who made oxycontin um and they it's, it was their financial times revealed that they got a earlier this year got a, a patent for a drug which helps wean people off oxycontin which is the uh, the yeah. main driver of the uh, opioid crisis um and so i think there's you know there's there's calls to reject their their money to take their names off off various wings of um of these museums but it seems like maybe you're right ben this this era of um like philanthro capitalism is it is it kind of um not up entirely but are people starting to see well actually there's quite this there's limitations it's an obama kind of fashion um thing amongst you know democrats and now there's a new a new kind of political game in town i think the new political game i don't know how effective it is sort of like uh highlighting diversity as uh, we've changed, we're part of the resistance, we're part of this movement. And I think that's a response to social pressure, which you see through things like Colin Kaepernick or like in uh, Israel, where people try to disguise uh, the occupation and the ongoing violations of human rights there by highlighting how uh, gay-friendly Tel mm-hmm. Aviv is. And like, you know, it's pinkwashing now. It's like yeah. highlighting that we have a black woman or we have a trans spokesperson. It's kind of like... Don't, we, we can't be that bad if we diverse and I think that's and like that highlights of like diversity and in individual stories as proof of victories and proof that there's this sort of rising change in social sentiments whether it's the reactions to me too by shutting out people accused or uh trying to have this highlight this advertising campaign by Nike this is kind of like how political and corporate elites or the bourgeoisie uh, is reacting towards this it's highlight it's the inclusionary narrative rather than uh pointing t- towards their charitable work through uh helping african kids like it used to be like five six years ago a new political ideological strategy of left neoliberalism that's right i think though it has been outflanked both by the alt-right sort of laughing in the face of all that um but also by a left critique which re-engages with material issues and with class struggle, um, even if that's maybe in its infancy. And that, that I think, puts an end a little bit to something that we discussed uh, a little while ago, but it was about the legacy of 68. And I think a lot of these forms of ethical consumerism or of a kind of a activist political liberalism um, all feature like an incorporation of the spirit of 68 by capitalism. Uh, and that kind of dominated a lot of discourse over the 90s and 2000s up till today i think what we're seeing today is perhaps the the, the you know the death throes of that um and maybe that's a good place to leave this but next we are looking forward uh, over a whole range of different themes we are talking about brazil we're talking about the theory of the entrepreneur we're having a big brexit episode uh we have a range of special guests coming on amber lee frost alex gurovich uh we have all that to look forward to over the coming month and a half uh, please join us for those 
We'll be announcing that all on Twitter and Facebook. If you don't already follow us, search for Alpha Bunga Bunga on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We share memes uh, if you like that kind of thing. And uh, please do share our content with your friends. Okay, that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.